Having moved cities quite a lot in my life, the art of getting lost in a new city and trying to work out where everything is, is part of the fun. Getting lost and having to deductively work out where you are without a map is the best way to explore somewhere new, in my opinion. The French, of course, have a word for this. The term flaneur is a man of great means who aimlessly wanders around the streets of Paris or other great city. An urban explorer and connoisseur of the street, the aim is not to be guided but to explore. In England, the fun during the 19th century became rambling. Whether you intentionally got lost was probably not the intention of most. Parliament put laws into effect to enable rambling across much of the English countryside. The art of exploring is pretty much getting more and more difficult with each passing decade. The flaneur was very much a 19th century tradition. Today, we have a phone and signal. We will always know where we are. The art of getting lost is itself being lost. The joy of going for a walk with a vague idea of where you are is a thing of the past. Who can resist getting out your smartphone to find out where you are? Yet this ability to get lost is a position of privilege. Getting lost, and I mean truly lost, is a terrifying experience. In Europe today, it's almost impossible to truly get lost. Even in the highlands of Scotland or the northern reaches of Scandinavia, you would probably have difficulty in not finding signs of civilizations or landmarks within a couple of days. Yet not everywhere is like Europe. Get lost in the Australian outback, Sahara, or Siberia, and you will have more problems finding yourself the way back home. But even then, how many people genuinely get lost in these places with no means of finding your way back out? The vast majority of sensible people going into the outback or desert will take a number of navigation devices with them, maps, compass, battery packs and satellite phones. Even in pre-modern times, the idea of getting lost on land was relatively quickly overcome through strong folk cultures of navigation. The idea of three wise men following the star that guided the way to Jesus isn't stupid. These were wise men, according to Matthew, and they came from the east. Though no mention is made of there only being three of them, they only gave out three presents. The star of Bethlehem is probably all made up but the idea of navigation via the stars isn't. This travelling over land, however, is completely different at sea. Imagine a desert the size of the Atlantic or Pacific. The landscape is not too dissimilar. One is just sea and one is just sand. But the ability to get lost with nothing to see but the horizon and the same sights of sand or sea is similar. Trying to work out how to get precisely from one area of this desert to another without getting lost would be insanely hard. Then imagine man isn't designed to travel at sea and you need a ship big enough for possible voyage spanning months. There would not be any respite, no desert oasis or possibility for meeting small villages or herders who also may roam the desert. Unlike the desert, there would be no signs or landmarks to help at all. For all of these reasons, you will probably just hug to near the desert coastline as, for most of history, sailors did. So, if you are in a situation where you need to cross an ocean, 
you will do anything to avert getting lost. The main role of the captain is less about morale on board and purely about navigation. Yet man and woman has sailed for millennia. It was only with the age of exploration following Columbus's discovery of the New World that there was a clear incentive to enable more and more ships to go across the ocean. For a 17th century merchant ship, the ability to not get lost is the most important job for a captain. Getting lost at sea can result in the death for all on board, the loss of cargo, geopolitical catastrophe or naval defeat. For those other than the flaneur, getting lost is not a good thing. When you're in the car and trying to find the best place to park, or the correct turning on a roundabout, that is stressful. In all the places I've been, Glasgow is the worst for this. It has a motorway one-way system right through the city centre. So you take one wrong turn and you have to go all the way back and start again. Yet, even in Glasgow, the internet does exist. And we always knew where we were because of Google Maps. And I do wonder, for anybody listening, how many of you have ever been truly 100% lost? Not gone in the wrong direction, but completely unaware of where you were, with no seeming ability to find your way out. I can't imagine a time it's happened to me, but I'm sure for more adventurous people than I, it's a more regular thing. Now imagine that feeling of being completely and utterly lost, but instead you're captaining a ship on the open ocean with perhaps dozens of other people on board. For most of history, we didn't have Google Maps telling us which exits to take, we didn't even have maps, and we certainly didn't know the longitudinal position of where we were. A pretty important thing when you're in the middle of the ocean. Do you remember that bit in Lord of the Rings, at the start where Sam and Frodo are starting on their adventure? And at one moment Sam stops and says he's never been further than this point in his life. How accurate would that be? For how much of history would people have literally only known what was in the next day or two's walk? For when you haven't mapped anything, and travel takes a long time, the benefit of knowing what's beyond your village isn't all that clear. For most of history, navigation has been by landmarks. Trees or streams would mark important points. Yet some areas in wooded Europe remained relatively untouched. Forests, like the sea, are hard to navigate around due to the lack of landmarks. Yet necessity is the mother of invention. There was a dying need in medieval Europe for better navigation systems, especially at sea. So much discovery and exploration was done by accident before genuine navigation systems took hold. Yet what navigation is, a mix of discoveries of the natural world coupled with extremely precise and high quality craftsmanship made the world more understandable and chartable. Depending on where you are going, you will use different devices. Navigation on land is different to navigation on water, which is different to navigation on the open sea, which is different to navigation in the air, which is different to navigation in space. Yet, wherever you are wanting to go, or aim to go, navigation is crucial in getting you there. 
The first navigation systems all used the natural world. The moon, sun and stars were the only real, reliable indicators of where you were on Earth. Yet knowing where the sun was in relation to the sky and the variety of local factors that influenced the weather and the seas must have meant, for early man, it was nigh impossible to understand these things completely enough to use them as reliable indicators for navigation. I don't think it's intuitive at all to look up at the stars and think it's a good method to guide yourself via them. If you were lost in the middle of an ocean, could you use the sun and stars to find your way back to where you wanted to go? So where does the story of navigation start? What is the difference between early exploration and being a flanon? For the most part, probably not a lot. There was simply curiousness of what was over the horizon. For some, the temptation must have been too much. For some places, this paid off, and new land was discovered. For others, it was a long and difficult journey, with most likely a lot of death. So what can be counted as navigation? Roman history doesn't give us much of an account of navigation, but there must have been some navigation for the Roman ships to begin navigating around the British Isles. Yet, with the English Channel being so narrow, it's actually quite difficult to get lost. Further, the similarity of the Celtic peoples of Brittany and the British Isles suggests there was a lot of two-way traffic between them. The same must have been said in Arabia and Asia. The closeness of, say, the Strait of Hormuz means that navigation may not have been that needed. While, for the Far East, the strength of China on land and its domination of its neighbours and the natural geography meant there wasn't much demand, really, for navigation devices. This is all such a long time ago, remember, that navigation was probably only the second most important thing after staying afloat. So there was a natural reason why shipping stayed very close to the shore and risk-free. Yet not everywhere is like the Med or English Channel. Places that rely on navigation the most, not for a nice bit of trade, but whose survival rests on being able to navigate to the nearest other landmass, will of course see much more developed navigational systems. Those on small islands who needed to communicate reliably with other small islands would be the first always to develop rudimentary forms of navigation. The Polynesians seem to be far ahead of the game when it comes to navigation in man's early years. The Polynesians originally just tried to use boats that were built to stay afloat, rather than to make huge gains in navigation. I mean, navigation isn't much good if you know where you're going, but always sink halfway there. But as more seaworthy boats were built, the voyages became more adventurous. The reasons for moving further away from the coast aren't known. Possibly exploration, fishing or trade, or maybe all three. But the navigation techniques firstly used were visual only, meaning that it was only possible to navigate during daytime. The most obvious techniques used, other than landmasses in Polynesia, to identify where you were was using long poles to judge the water depth. The use of sounding poles are so simple that they're still in use today. Yachts still feel their way into dock using these poles, judging the depth of where they're going, along with the type of river or seabed. 
These are probably the first instruments made for navigation purposes. The Polynesians were originally from Indonesia and the Philippines several thousand years ago, before they headed out into the Pacific intent on finding new land. Nobody knew what made them set out, but they did find these islands in the Pacific. The Pacific Islanders are now seen as some of the best natural navigators in history. They were able, in their small, sleek boats, to navigate from island to island and undertake extensive voyages. The book Guns, Germs and Steel, which I'm sure many people are familiar with, has a large amount based on Polynesian populations and a really fascinating insight into human creativity and adaptiveness. The Polynesians' ways got more complex as time went on, as you might imagine. For example, the Polynesian islands are low in the water, so it's not the best for simply sailing between islands. Yet they can be highly visible, because clouds tend to form over the islands, so high clouds could be seen 50 miles away making landfall. Polynesians could also follow the tracks of migrating birds. This has been suggested for their discovery of New Zealand which is more than 1,000 miles away from Polynesia. All this knowledge was collated and transmitted without the written word. It was passed down from father to son. Polynesians also began using rudimentary navigation instruments such as charts, spatial representation of islands, and instruments for measuring the elevation of celestial objects. They had an extensive folk culture of songs and stories for memorizing stars, islands, and routes. This Polynesian development mirrored in many ways what would happen in the Mediterranean. Yet, for the Europeans, they had one advantage. Polynesia is near the equator, so they couldn't see the Pole Star, sometimes called the North Star, which gives an easy measure of latitude in the Northern Hemisphere. For the Polynesians, they had to develop a highly attuned measure of how to locate themselves. It's not as easy as looking at one star in the sky. Finding an island in an ocean is far harder to find when you're following a shoreline. Yet the Polynesians had an answer for this too. They had an intense knowledge of the coral reefs, which spanned for hundreds of miles. They would be able to tell unfamiliar islands by the changes in the waves and pinpoint their location by birds and cloud formations. Rather biblically, they also let a frigate bird fly free. The bird couldn't land on water because its wings would get waterlogged. So, if it couldn't see land, it would return to the boat. Some evidence suggests the Polynesians even travelled to the ice fields of Antarctica and to South America and back. Even with all this, we'll never know how many Polynesians went missing, lost at sea on voyages. One would think it would be quite high, as it was for the rest of the world. So while the Polynesians with the top of the tree for ingenuity and navigation, the early Chinese gave them a good run. The Chinese used, of course, bamboo to make ships, and some suggest they travelled as far as Australia, which isn't too improbable considering there isn't a huge amount of open ocean for the Chinese to make that voyage compared to a European coming around the African coast. The Chinese also headed north across the Bering Strait to quote-unquote find the American continent. Some suggest the Chinese also sailed across the Indian Ocean and crossed the Pacific. 
The Chinese were the first to develop a compass, which used a piece of magnetite with magnetic properties floating on water and in a fixed direction. The compass, as it was, would not work on small crafts, such as canoes, due to their small nature. Hence, why the Chinese built bigger ships, to provide a more stable platform for the compass. The Chinese also developed a way to measure speed by throwing a floating object overboard the bow to measure the time it took to float past the stern. The latitude was measured from the Pole Star or the Southern Cross, depending on if you were in the north or the south of the equator. Yet really, once again, we have to go back to Europe for a broader history. Not only because it saw the largest advances, but also that they wrote down much of their basic navigation techniques. Coastal navigation was quite advanced in Europe, but nothing like the Chinese or Polynesians. The Europeans generally found shortcuts for navigation compared to the long and deep cultural significance that the Polynesians gained over millennia. Actually something we see quite a lot. Other countries and civilizations doing one thing extremely well, and then the West finding out how to do it using a shortcut of mechanisation. Yet the Europeans were helped in one area over the Polynesians. The Mediterranean is big, but not quite the Pacific big, so it was far easier to chart and navigate. Both areas, however, did have one similarity. The prevailing winds in the Med, like the Pacific, could often be used to help locate your position. In Europe, trade was the primary reason for voyaging, not exploration or settling of new lands. In around 1000 BC, King Solomon built a fleet of ships to bring back goods to Israel, where there are several references to Mediterranean voyages in the Bible. By the time of Jesus, there was regular sailing between the Red Sea and India, and a few centuries later to China. In the opposite direction were the Phoenicians, reaching the Atlantic in 1200 BC, where they were attracted to the silver mines of Spain and travelling down the African coastlines. In 700 BC, it suggested that the pharaohs of Egypt assembled Phoenician ships at the top of the Red Sea to travel around Africa. Of course, not knowing how big Africa was, this was quite the undertaking. The Phoenicians had already been exploring the coast of Africa for many years, and there's some evidence to suggest they did go all the way around Africa, taking three years. The main piece of evidence to support that this journey took place was that they reported that the midday sun was in the north rather than the south, which you could only report if you had seen it. You wouldn't have been able to guess that would happen to the sun, especially when the sun was believed still to orbit around the earth. Yet, even this mammoth journey around Africa was still just hugging the coastline. After the Phoenicians, it was the Greeks, who in about the 4th century BC went north after Gibraltar. One ship, the Pythias, is suggested to have circumnavigated the British Isles, and possibly gone up to Norway or the Faroes. Like the Phoenicians, the Greeks went so far north that they saw the sun for 24 hours a day, something that must have astounded them. Yet, even these explorations suggest the navigators never stayed more than a day or two from land, and we'll never know how many trading or exploration missions were sent out and what they saw, as most of it was never written down. By the Roman period, 
and we know that they traded with the British after their invasion, without becoming a regular trade route. The remarkable thing to consider, even by this point in history, was that the majority of the world's oceans had been explored, apart from the Atlantic, to some extent by humans. The first crossing of the Atlantic was an Irish monk called Brendan the Navigator. He is credited with discovering the Faroes and Iceland, and possibly reaching America. There isn't much evidence, however, to suggest this, as you might expect, otherwise there would be a million films about it, and every St. Patrick's Day parade would feature the story. The only real evidence is some odd cave dwellings in northeastern North America that represent a strong Celtic influence. The next great seafaring explorers were the Vikings, who explored a lot between 800 AD and 1000 AD. They travelled around Great Britain, something not easy to do. That passage over the north of Scotland has never been easy, and from there went to Iceland, Greenland, and then Labrador and Newfoundland, though they weren't interested in settling. These Viking discoveries should probably not be a good reference point in this episode, as is often argued that the Vikings were not great navigators, but merely lucky in their discoveries. That is no surprise. Almost all of this over-the-horizon navigation by anybody was luck. But fortune favours the brave, and if you send enough people out on ships vaguely towards Britain or somewhere new, eventually they might find somewhere new. There were little inventions or innovations that helped at this point not taking into account, of course, their brilliant boats and sheer bravery in taking them out over the Atlantic, over the Roth Sea, to escape the poverty from the stricken Nordic lands, whose population was beginning to become too large for what it could sustain. As navigation got more ambitious, what previously limited navigation techniques existed, such as the sounding pole, which was mostly useful in rivers or estuaries, wasn't so good in the open sea. A follow-up to the pole was the lead line, which used to mark how deep a piece of water was. It's quite surprising how much information a rope with a piece of lead on the end and dropped into the water can glean. It can tell you the depth of the water and that the bottom could be filled with tallow that acted like grease, which could pick up samples from the seabed. Knowing what the seabed was made of might give you an indication of which part of the sea you were in. A knowledge of how deep the sea was, and what the seabed was, is a pretty useful piece of information. This is important as it allowed a good option for out on open sea navigation. A navigator could work out if the water was getting deeper or shallower as he travelled. Navigation at this point was a very deductive technique, trying to work out little clues and connect them together. The use of lead lining was mentioned as far back as the Bible, with St Paul mentioning sailors measuring depths in fathoms, a Roman measurement using lead lining. This would eventually result, millennia later, in the Kelvin sounding machine, which used fine wire rather than thick rope to give more accurate results. Invented by Lord Kelvin, who also created the Kelvin temperature system in 1876, it was standard method until the echo sounder in the 1930s, which did the exact same thing, except manually. The echo sounder was simple, but it took a while to work out how to use it. It was proposed by a German physicist to measure depth by setting off a small explosion 
and measuring the time before the sound came back to the surface. As you can imagine, this never caught on for some reason. A method without causing explosions was found in the use of transducers, which would transmit sound frequencies and pick up a recurring sound. Post-World War II, this became sonar, though to a large extent the advance in other navigation devices meant there was no longer a real need for this type of equipment. So, going back to lead lines, just because you use them, it doesn't make you a great seaman. Lucky discoveries are just lucky discoveries. And if we're looking at lucky discoveries, we shouldn't look past Christopher Columbus. One of those events we keep coming back to on this podcast. As we all know, Columbus was trying to go around the other side of the world to the Indies. The reason for all of this was trade and geopolitics, in trying to gain a market share of the spice and trade with the East, which Venice and Genoa had sewn up for the European market. Once it had passed through Muslim traders, and possibly then to the Ottomans, to the Genoese and to the Spanish merchant, to a local trader, and then to the consumer, the markup must have been huge. It's arguably not too dissimilar to the modern day drug trade. And as we all know, the markup for drugs is so huge. That's why often they're sold as impurities. So what this meant was that if you lived on the furthest edge of the western edge of the Eurasian landmass, as Spain was, it made perfect sense to think about going around to the other side. Everybody knew the Earth was round, even by this point, and they even had estimates of the radius of the Earth from Islamic scholars. Everybody knew the world was round, they just didn't know America was there. What Columbus did was push the geopolitical centre of the world to the west. It also meant that there was a sudden demand for better seamanship, and if that couldn't be achieved, Devices that would give you a cheat code through knowledge that took Polynesians and other great seafaring people's generation to achieve was also possible to use. The Azores had been discovered 50 years before Columbus, so the Atlantic was known for about 100 miles. Further in the South Atlantic, consistent winds were known around the Canary Islands, which is also something Columbus knew about. By this time, sailors could sail fairly reliably along the lines of latitude, so to a main course west, this wasn't particularly difficult. Perhaps Columbus's biggest contributions were sailing back on a more northerly course, where the winds were found to be better for travelling. So we've charted a small history of navigation, but not their devices. The first real navigation device used is the compass. This is also the first time we've encountered one of what is called the Four Great Inventions of China, celebrated as China's greatest four inventions. The compass, along with gunpowder, papermaking and printing, are all indeed important. Yet to call all of these four Chinese inventions Chinese may be true, but it wasn't the Chinese who would make best use of them. The ability to work out which direction to sail in isn't as easy as you might think when faced with the open ocean. Indeed, it must have been terrifying. So following the coastline was the obvious way you could sail to make sure you were going in the right direction. In different areas, finding the right direction could be easier than others. The Med has lots of high mountains around its edge, and even where there was low-lying land, such as the Nile Delta, the lighthouse of Alexandria was built 400 feet high, which provided light for 30 miles away. Built in 300 BC, 
the light was a massive advance in navigation around perhaps the most prosperous region on Earth. The natural elements always provided good indication for navigation. Yet, in the med as a whole, the direction of wind was less of a reliable guide to direction than in some bodies of water. But some regions like the Adriatic or the North African coast did have reliable winds. Yet, it was in the sunny Mediterranean which proved to be a help to the economy in providing good navigation for merchants on ship. Even by 2000 BC, the sun was well understood, as were the seasons, and it was known that the sun could act as both a clock and an indicator of direction. It was not the most accurate measure, however. The changes in the travel of the sun, well, orbiting of the Earth around the sun, which makes it look like the sun was moving, but you know what I mean, gave navigators a useful guide and once vessels started on their overnight journeys, it was the stars that provided the best way to guide. We've talked about the pole star, with its fixed location in the sky, in the northern hemisphere, pointing lost navigators the way north. Yet, the pole star is not the brightest. You can imagine sailors back in the day hoping and praying that cloud cover would go, so they can find the pole star. Yet, it was this inability in finding reliable indicators of travel that kept seafaring to the coast. So the compass, what is it? It's made of lodestone, sometimes called oxide of iron or Fe304, which makes it sound far more dull than it actually is. Not only does it attract iron, but it can be magnetised, meaning it exhibits polarity. A long and slim silver lodestone suspended by her thread will transfer to a needle the same characteristics. It's thought that the compass was introduced 2,000 years ago for land use to find a way out of deserts. While it's also possible the magnetic properties of the compass were used for fortune telling and feng shui. Born in 1157, Alexander Neckham, an English scholar monk, was the first to record the metal needle being magnetised by a lodestone and used as a compass in 1190 in Europe. In 1218, Jacques de Vitry was a French bishop and wrote, quote, After it has made contact with the magnet stone, always turns towards the North Star, which stands motionless while the rest resolve, being as it were the axis of the firmament. It is therefore a necessity for those travelling by sea. Close quotes. Yet we of course know that the compass was not a European invention. Centuries earlier the Chinese had written about the directional properties of the load stone. A Chinese encyclopedist, Xuan Kua, noted, quote, A geomancer rubs the point of the needle with the lodestone to make it point south. Close quotes. The Chinese experimented with this, along with decorative uses such as floating wooden fish to point south and a small wooden turtle fitted with a lodestone. The first maritime use was recorded in the 12th century by the son of a high port official who recorded the use thusly, quote, the ship's pilots are acquainted with the configuration of the coasts. At night they steer by the stars, and in daytime by the sun. In dark weather, they look at the south-pointing needle. By the 13th century, Chinese sailors were sailing into the East China Sea, where there was a lot of blue water sailing, but sailing without a coastline. Yet Chinese development of the compass didn't keep up with the Europeans, who would make best use of them. The ability to work out which direction to sail in isn't as easy as you might think when faced with the open ocean. 
Indeed, it must have been terrifying. So following the coastline was the obvious way you could sail to make sure you were going in the right direction. In different areas, finding the right direction could be easier than others. The Med has lots of high mountains around its edge, and even where there was low-lying land, such as the Nile Delta, the lighthouse at Alexandria was built 400 feet high, which provided light for 30 miles away. Built in 300 BC, the light was a massive advance in navigation around perhaps the most prosperous region on Earth. The natural elements always provided good indication for navigation. Yet, in the Med as a whole, the direction of wind was less of a reliable guide to direction than in some bodies of water. But some regions like the Adriatic or the North African coast did have reliable winds. Yet, it was in the sunny Mediterranean which proved to be a help to the economy in providing good navigation for merchants on ship. Even by 2000 BC, the sun was well understood, as were the seasons, and it was known that the sun could act as both a clock and an indicator of direction. It was not the most accurate measure, however. The changes in the travel of the sun, well, orbiting of the Earth around the sun, which makes it look like the sun was moving, but you know what I mean, gave navigators a useful guide and once vessels started on their overnight journeys, it was the stars that provided the best way to guide. We've talked about the pole star, with its fixed location in the sky, in the northern hemisphere, pointing lost navigators the way north. Yet, the pole star is not the brightest. You can imagine sailors back in the day hoping and praying that cloud cover would go, so they can find the pole star. Yet, it was this inability in finding reliable indicators of travel that kept seafaring to the coast. So the compass, what is it? It's made of lodestone, sometimes called oxide of iron or Fe304, which makes it sound far more dull than it actually is. Not only does it attract iron, but it can be magnetised, meaning it exhibits polarity. A long and slim silver lodestone suspended by her thread will transfer to a needle the same characteristics. It's thought that the compass was introduced 2,000 years ago for land use to find the way out of deserts. While it's also possible the magnetic properties of the compass were used for fortune telling and feng shui. Born in 1157, Alexander Neckham, an English scholar monk, was the first to record the metal needle being magnetised by a lodestone and used as a compass in 1190 in Europe. In 1218, Jacques de Vitry was a French bishop and wrote, quote, After it has made contact with the magnet stone, always turns towards the North Star, which stands motionless while the rest resolve, being as it were the axis of the firmament. It is therefore a necessity for those travelling by sea. Close quotes. Yet we of course know that the compass was not a European invention. Centuries earlier the Chinese had written about the directional properties of the lodestone. A Chinese encyclopedist, Xuan Kua, noted, quote, A geomancer rubs the point of the needle with the lodestone to make it point south. Close quotes. The Chinese experimented with this, along with decorative uses such as floating wooden fish to point south and a small wooden turtle fitted with a lodestone. The first maritime use was recorded in the 12th century by the son of a high port official who recorded the use thusly, quote, the ship's pilots are acquainted with the configuration of the coasts. At night they steer by the stars, 
and in daytime by the sun. In dark weather, they look at the south-pointing needle. By the 13th century, Chinese sailors were sailing into the East China Sea, where there was a lot of blue water sailing, but sailing without a coastline. Yet Chinese development of the compass didn't keep up with the Europeans. The Crusades were a vital development for Christendom. The superiority of Muslim strategy, planning resources, and pretty much everything else was almost like a Sputnik moment. Yet for our purposes, the Crusades did see quite a major work in navigation devices, which of course was needed to get soldiers from all over the continent to Jerusalem. Even the Catholic Church and assorted kings weren't wanting to leave these huge fleets to chance, and so would need rapid improvements in seamanship to get them there safely. This led to the introduction of charts, with the oldest existing chart dating from 1275. Charts are basically early maps. Not always drawn, but the things recorded, like the sun position, or stars, or the coastline. All in an attempt to find a cheat way around actually learning how to sail. The chart in 1275 we still have extends from the Black Sea to the south of England, and is extraordinarily accurate, though there weren't yet any lines of longitude or latitude. Yet the nature of science at the time meant that the Compassium Meridium, as it was called, was still seen as slightly dodgy. The needle sometimes wandered, and nobody could explain why it didn't always point to the same permanent north. By the 15th century, the Portuguese were colonising the Azores and down the African coast, and they noticed the compass was pointing northeast, away from true north. Magnetic variation, that is changes in magnetic polarity, is a natural shift over time. This is not a concept you would have known about before this point in history. By the 16th century this phenomena had been known about for some time, but not yet explored. But the age of exploration meant that the compass helped unleash more and more exploration meaning it was ever more important to understand magnetic variation. The Portuguese and Spanish's knowledge of magnetic variation was kept to themselves, but around Europe there was a lot of guesswork as to the precise location of magnetic north, due to this variation. In 1633, it was found London's magnetic variation declined from 11 and a quarters degrees in 1580 to 4 degrees east in 1633, making precise plotting impossible. This difficulty in magnetic variation meant precise plotting remained elusive. The search remained for the ability to find one's position at sea with a compass. Even with all this, what the compass did do with its introduction in Europe in the 14th and 15th centuries, sources differ as to the widespread adoption, was to allow for ships to more regularly take year-round sailing trips, not just during the summer months when the skies were clear. Ships could travel out of the line of the coast and into virgin waters with more security. The increasing confidence for travelling into virgin waters did pose problems of course. You might kind of know where you are, but how do you fix your position on a map? How do you navigate more precisely? A compass is useful, and so are the stars, and so is the surrounding environment and intuition. But for precise navigation, a better system was needed. The first system for geographic coordinate systems goes back to Hipparchus of Nicaea of the 2nd century BC. Yet what was invented was largely for land use only, and only useful if you were on land, and were okay with using a map with an arbitrary centre which differed from town to town. A uniform system 
of coordinations were only formalised in 1844, yet this early system of Hipparchus carried on in some areas of this old invention, such as choosing 360 degrees as the base for the coordinates, an ode to the even then old Babylonian civilization. Yet this proved a wise choice in the fullness of time, with each degree of division representing about 60 nautical miles, a nice and easy set of divisions. Perhaps most importantly, and most obviously for navigation, was the need for maps. The use of charts and maps came quite late due to the lack of surveys undertaken. There was a natural competition between sailors, so information was not shared freely. Word of mouth was really the only way information was passed around. By the 5th century, and Herodotus' map of the known world shows the Mediterranean shoreline quite accurately, but maps of use for sailors included sea depths too. Distances were often measured in terms of days or leagues, and the league being the distance somebody could walk in one hour. It took until really the Crusades for charts to be used. This was okay for enclosed seas like the Med, but for open oceans it was far well less travelled. What was needed was for the open ocean to have a practical method of representing the curvature of the meridians on a flat surface. In 1569, Gerhardus Mercator published a world map based on this projection. The projection means a spherical surface is represented on a flat one. This requires it to be distorted to appear flat. The Mercator is still the most commonly used map. With the north on the top of the map, the Mercator shows the longitudinal representational by equal lines and latitude represented by horizontal lines. The map subsequently overrepresents the north and south of the regions around the equator, making Greenland look bigger than Africa. We'll discuss this a little later on in our section on maps. Yet true positioning at sea would not have been possible without one man. When I hear his name, the first place it takes me is to the finale of British sitcom Only Falls and Horses. The episode where Del Boy and Rodney find they've been sitting on one of the world's most valuable watches for nearly 15 years. Of course, they didn't know the Harrison Lesser watch, or H6, would be extremely valuable. Harrison is one of the people in history who solves a problem so absolutely that after, everybody forgets what a remarkable achievement it was. Neil Armstrong once said the story of John Harrison was a fascinating tale of remarkable achievement, and we should know what importance positioning and location is. So here is that story, told with probably a lot of simplicity. Latitude, the north to south divide, and longitude, the east to west axis to coordination, as we've hinted at, is vitally important in understanding where you are at sea. Ptolemy in 150 AD plotted the longitude and latitude on his maps as travellers told him about places they'd visited. The equator was known to them even back then, marking the zero degree parallel of latitude, though he also thought that if you travelled south of the equator you would melt from the horrible heat. He knew about the equator from his predecessor, who observed that the sun, moon and planets passed directly overhead. Similarly, the Tropic of Capricorn and Cancer assumed their position due to the sun, marking the northern and southern boundaries of the sun passing directly overhead. Yet there was no naturally occurring zero-degree longitude line. 
If the moon had orbited in that direction, you could use that, but it doesn't. So Ptolemy chose to run his line through Madeira. Yet this line has also been nearly everywhere mapmakers wanted to place it. Rome, Copenhagen, Jerusalem, St. Petersburg, Pisa, Paris and Philadelphia, among many more, before the line was settled to be in London, where it still rests today. Meaning London is the centre of the world, a fixation with itself London has not yet overcome. Working out the latitude was easy. Even Christopher Columbus was able to sail across the latitude. Columbus simply went west along the parallel and would have found the Indies had the Americas not got in his way. To measure longitude is, however, much more difficult. One way, theoretically, was to know precisely what time aboard the ship it was, and at another place, like home port. From there, you could use the time difference from a fixed location, most famously GMT, and you could then use spherical trigonometry to determine the degree to which you have travelled to work out your longitudinal coordinate. The problem of working out the longitude using this method was not guaranteed. There were other possibilities, like working out the longitude from the stars, but this was a very difficult and time-consuming thing to learn. Simply get an accurate clock and work out the time difference from home port compared to where you are. Yet it was still very difficult to get a reliable timepiece that actually kept the time of home port. Without this timepiece, longitude is a very difficult thing to work out without paper instruments. Even during the age of exploration, many captains became lost at sea, all due to a lack of navigation skills. Vasco da Gama, Magellan, Francis Drake all got by on luck as much as skill. Still, shipping increased with the increasing European trade, and there was an ever-growing need for more reliable navigation, as highlighted by an event on the 22nd of October 1707, when four homeward-bound British ships ran aground on the Scilly Isles, with nearly 2,000 men lost, which still remains one of the worst maritime disasters in British history. Subsequently to this, merchants and seamen began petitioning Parliament to put up a reward for an adequate solution to the Longitude Act. To solve the problems of longitude was a big one in early modern Europe. Many of the great men of the age tried to come at the problem. Galileo, Cassini, Huygens, Newton and Edmund Halley. The great seafaring states of the day offered a bounty for successfully solving this problem. The main thrust of original research was the attempt to measure the longitude via the stars. Celestial navigation, of course, goes all the way back to the North Star. Many a captain carried astrolabes, which helped measure the altitude of the horizon compared to a celestial body at day or night, and it could help identify stars and planets. It was from here the sextant was developed. The sextant uses double reflection to enable the user to observe the horizon and the heavenly body in one stable image. By being able to measure the angles at sea to a heavenly body, it was possible to measure longitude at sea. This is another area where we see how a better understanding of something theoretical, like the location of the Earth in relation to the stars, and just plain understanding of astronomy, can have a huge real-world implication. Yet the sextant isn't perfect and you need to have a good sight of celestial bodies to use it, and it's still not the most accurate way to measure your exact longitude. If you're travelling over thousands of miles, and your positioning is 20 miles out, that can have a massive impact, especially with sail ships needing to get the exact 
requirements of wind travel. It's not too dissimilar to the omnidirectional roads of Glasgow. In 1736, unknown clockmaker John Harrison carried aboard a promising possibility on a voyage to Lisbon. Aboard HMS Centurion, the ship's officers saw how Harrison's clock could be used to improve their position. The clock indeed showed them to be 60 miles off course. Over the next few years, Harrison improved on his clock and then moved on to watches. Yet the trial of Harrison's clock was only a trial. When the Centurion sailed without Harrison or the clock to the South Pacific, relying on latitude, intuition and seamanship, it showed the desperate need for longitudinal mapping. On March the 7th, 1741, in the midst of scurvy, the Centurion rounded the tip of South America, and a storm blew, knocking out its sails. Meanwhile, scurvy was killing six to ten men a day. Captain Anson tried to bring the ship into dock, only relying on latitude, but he kept sailing too far. After a few days he saw land, but it turned out to be the Spanish-ruled walled coast of Chile. And so Anson turned around, regretting that he had missed Juan Fernandez Island, his original destination by only a couple of hours' travel in the wrong direction. The extra two weeks of sailing it cost Anson in missing Juan Fernandez Island cost 80 lives overall. Even the best of the Royal Navy still needed to work out longitude. The problem of longitude on land had been solved by Galileo. By observing the moons of Saturn, he claimed you could work out the longitude, but it was only possible at night, and only after Galileo died did it become accepted wisdom, with map makers redrawing the world based on the worked out longitude on land. But you can't have a marker in the sea labelling what the longitude is. You would have to work out the longitude on the fly. Yet how to do it reliably on the open seas without spending half your life studying astronomy and mathematics like Galileo had was more difficult to work out. So perhaps the only option was this other idea of using time differences to work out longitude. This idea had been formulated by Flemish astronomer Gemma Frisius in 1530, with the idea propagated without much success for the next 200 years or so. When the matter of longitude was brought before Parliament in May 1714, a parliamentary committee was assembled to respond. The committee was able to bring together the two greatest men of the age, Sir Isaac Newton and Edmund Haley. Newton discussed the possibilities for a timekeeper approach. Quote, One method is by a watch to keep time exactly. But by reason of the motion of the ship, the variation of heat and cold, wet and dry, and the difference of gravity in different latitudes, such a watch hath not yet been made. The results of these discussions was the Longitude Act of 1714, which offered a prize money depending upon the accuracy of the method. It was open to any solution and domestic or foreign competition. The difficulty of longitude gave way to a phrase, quote, discovering the longitude, close quotes, to mean an act of near impossibility. For the top prize of £20,000, the solution would have to tell the longitude within half a degree, meaning a watch could only lose a maximum of three seconds every 24 hours. Something the limited mechanics of the time proved very difficult to achieve, with contemporary clocks losing minutes in every hour. Yet, as time went on, even Isaac Newton got ever more frustrated with the time it was taking to get a solution. This from a man who discovered the law of optics, law of motion, universal law of gravitation, 
an integral and differential calculus before he turned 26. So Newton decided to stand on the shoulders of giants and turned towards Galileo's solution of solving the problem by looking at the skies, which was a lot easier to use on land and start to use this at sea. Newton's support for this method, along with the role of the Royal Observatory, meant that this was the preferred method for leading the natural philosophers of the day. John Harrison, who we mentioned earlier, was a relative unknown, with even today little known about his early life. Born in modern-day Wakefield, not far from where I used to live, his family moved from there to Lincolnshire, where a young John Harrison learned woodworking from his father. Harrison also taught himself to read, and read some of the more impressive works of the time, after a clergyman visited him in 1712 and gave him some natural philosophy to read. Harrison copied out the work and then annotated it. However, Harrison refused to allow any work by William Shakespeare in his house. Yet suddenly, Harrison started to gain an interest in clocks and watches and completed his first pendulum clock in 1713. The clock is now on display at the Worshipful Company of Clockmakers Museum in London. Nobody quite knows where this inspiration to make clocks and watches came from. They were expensive, and no clockmakers lived anywhere near North Lincolnshire in the early 18th century for Harrison to have been visited by and inspired. I guess you could look to the free market, and if there weren't any clockmakers in North Lincolnshire, there was certainly an opportunity. The other problem of researching Harrison is that because he was self-taught, he clearly didn't know fully how to write. His last published work, which outlines his dealings with the Board of Longitude, is one sentence lasting 25 pages with almost no punctuation. Nobody knows how Harrison heard of the Longitude Prize, but it's possible Hull, the third biggest port in England, would have been a buzz with the news, which isn't too far from North Lincolnshire. The other possibility was that the Longitude problem would have been one of the biggest problems and issues of the day, with even school children knowing of its importance, a modern day equivalent to finding a cancer cure. So what happened in solving the problem was a reason why Britain was truly great and unique during this era. Who was basically a carpenter from Wakefield, thought he could solve the biggest solution of the day, and then did. That he didn't get too much resistance, even from the aristocracy, and they even helped him in some way, must have aided Harrison an awful lot. By 1720, Harrison had acquired something of a local reputation as a clockmaker, with Sir Charles Pelham hiring Harrison to build a clock tower above his stable. The clock was completed in 1722, and has run continuously ever since. As Harrison began to make more and more timepieces, the accuracy got ever better. By the mid-1720s, he was able to make a clock that only drifted by a second over a month, that drifted by a minute in a day. That's 30 minutes over the course of a month. He realised by making his timekeeping a maritime timekeeper, he could be rich and famous. In 1730, he arrived in London to find the Board of Longitude, which had been in existence for 15 years, but there were no real headquarters, and the board had never actually met. The woeful quality of entrance meant that there was no real need, a simple rejection letter sufficed to most of the inventors. Harrison knew of Edmund Haley, and that he was a board member, and so went to the Royal Observatory at Greenwich to find him. Haley knew the board was mostly a set of astronomers, 
looking for an astronomical solution. So Haley sent Harrison to see George Graham, an instrument maker and prominent member of the Royal Society for advice. The village clockmaker and the premier scientific instrument maker of his generation subsequently dined as equals. The meal ended with Graham giving Harrison a loan with no interest and every encouragement. So Harrison is very much an outsider. Born in unfashionable towns with a perfunctory education, he was largely self-taught. Harrison spends the next five years after meeting Haley and Graham working on the first sea clock, now called the Harrison Number no. 1, which weighed 75 pounds and was 4 feet in height, width and depth, a perfect cube. You can still see it at the National Maritime Museum in Greenwich. The clock was a revelation in London. George Graham was delighted, as were the Royal Society and Edmund Haley, who along with three other members wrote an endorsement of the H1. The Admiralty, however, dragged its feet in holding a trial for it, making it go for a trial a whole year later in 1736, on the trip we saw earlier to Lisbon and back. In 1737, the Commissioners of the Board of Longitude convened for the first time in their 23-year history to praise the clock. Yet Harrison still wanted to improve it before he claimed the prize. The next clock, the H2, he reviled, saying it was poor. The H2 never went to sea. Harrison spent the next 20 years working in London on the H3. Yet the H1 stayed in the limelight, with it gaining attention around England, among artists, as the highest level between science and art. Artist William Hogarth wrote in the Analysis of Beauty in 1753, that the H1 was, quote, one of the most exquisite movements ever made, close quotes. Despite these efforts, the lunar method favoured by some in the Admiralty was still being propagated. By the late 1750s, in the efforts of the lunar navigation was looking as though they were beginning to pay off. Yet it still needed the captain of the ship to be somewhat of an astronomical expert to understand it all. By the late 1750s, Harrison's fourth timekeeper, the H4, his masterpiece was ready. Nobody knows why it took Harrison 19 years to build the H4. The evidence suggests all he did was work on the clock. He took a few odd jobs and relied on the money from the Board of Longitude, which gave him £2,500 over the years. The H4 is big for a pocket watch, but minuscule for a C1. You can still see the original now, where it lies in the National Maritime Museum. This was the timepiece that won the £20,000 offer from the Government and Board of Longitude. After much struggle and argument against the idea, he had finally completed the perfect marine timekeeper. When Harrison died in 1776, he stood alone in having fully solved the longitude problem. This method of solving the longitude problem via time is still the basic method of how satellite navigation works simply by using extremely accurate clocks to compare times. Captain James Cook took a replica of the H4 on his voyages with him, praising the brilliance and reliability of the timekeeping method. For clockmakers, Harrison paved the way for a whole bunch of marine timekeepers. Modern horologists link Britannia ruling the waves to this simple and ingenious way of knowing longitude. Simply to know what time it is back at port compared to where you are currently and you can work out the longitude. Harrison watches were too intricate for mass production. D. 
decent but clearly mass-produced version were made for general use, the most famous of which was the K2. It travelled on most of the great voyages of the age, including the doomed voyage of the HMS Bounty. The names of these devices changed from the original name of Marine Timekeeper to Marine Chronometer, when mass producer John Arnold renamed it. By the 1780s and the chronometer was cheap enough to allow naval officers to afford it, mostly paying for it out of their own pocket, yet it was a worthwhile investment. Many Navy captains relied on lunar reading when they could, but as they used the chronometer, it slowly won out as the best solution. When the HMS Beagle set off in 1831 with Charles Darwin on board, it had 22 chronometers. Half were the Admiralty's, six owned by the captain outright, while he had a further five on loan. They had all set their watches to Greenwich Mean Time, as had most of the railways in the United Kingdom. Yet it was at sea where it was most important to have the time. The importance of London and Greenwich in understanding longitude, with much original solutions being thought up, discussed and experimented with there, meant it was a natural place for the world to set the Prime Meridian. Maybe we could have discussed this in the episode on standards like the metric system, but it would only take a minute or two. How did the world come to be run by GMT? A conference was held by the US President Chester A. Arthur in 1884 to discuss the choice of a meridian to be employed as a common zero of longitude and standard of time reckoning throughout the world. By 1847, GMT had been established as the station time in British Railways rather than local time, something I'm sure we'll get onto in the railway episode. In 1883, a convention of railroad executives in Chicago agreed to the implementation of five time zones in North America, using GMT as a basis. 26 nations were included, excluding Canada and British India, who had delegates but were not formally represented. The important resolution of establishing GMT as convention was voted 22 to 1, with the Dominican Republic voting against and Brazil and France abstaining. The French may have abstained, but they weren't yet defeated. The French didn't adopt the Greenwich Meridian until 1911, and then refused to call it Greenwich, preferring to call it Paris Mean Time, retarded by 9 minutes and 21 seconds. You sometimes do have to admire the French and their sheer inability to like the English. By 1978, and they adopted the term Coordinated Universal Time, UTC. And today, if you go to Greenwich, you can stand on the Prime Meridian, half of you on the west half of the world and half of you on the east. The development in longitude and knowing where you were led directly to the ever-expanding British Empire, as superior seamanship, trading routes and transportation led to worldwide domination. The development of both the sextant and the chronometer has a direct correlation with sudden exploration by the great powers for new lands. Better charting of the foreign seas and an increase in globalisation following reliable sailing for merchants, passengers and warships. There is absolutely no coincidence that the development of longitude resulted very quickly in a rush from the great naval powers of the day to start charting the furthest places they could know about and wanted to explore, the Pacific Ocean. 
there was an initial rush following intrigue into the new world, which prompted the need to develop better navigation techniques. But once these initial barriers were overcome, there was a desire to see what was further out there. Of course, there were imperial reasons for this, to go along with scientific reasons. And for the British perspective, the simple fact you didn't want the French to get there before you must have been quite the spur. The feisty Americans had, by the 1760s, started to prove themselves as disloyal subjects, and maybe there was more than just the Americas to colonise. When I lived in Middlesbrough, at the start of the 21st century, Captain James Cook was still the icon of the place. Born in a village which is now considered part of Middlesbrough, he is still perhaps the most famous person from there. The hospital is named after him, there's a museum, and simply anything to do with James Cook is given pride of place. And this was simply for being an explorer, which is not a concept I think we really understand today. Pretty much everything has been charted. Imagine the celebrity of being the first person to see a new continent. By 1760, the map was as much blank in certain areas as known, with many still obsessed with the idea of another continent in the southern reaches of the Atlantic, Indian or Pacific Ocean. What added to this suspicion was the relative under-exploration of the Pacific Ocean, where it might not be unreasonable to expect another continent. In 1768, the British Admiralty sent an expedition to the South Seas to explore this possibility. James Cook was not the obvious choice, with many Royal Navy men being possibilities to lead. Yet Captain Cook's exceptional survey work in North America and his help in the Seven Years' War, or French and Indian War, gave him the edge. He was to take a little small ship, only 100 feet in length, called the Endeavour. Normally it would have 20 men, but on this voyage, it would have 90. Cook, by himself, would contribute more than any other European to the discovery of the Pacific Ocean. On his first voyage, Cook circumnavigated and charted New Zealand, and most of the east coast of Australia. On his second voyage, he went further south than anybody before, almost getting to Antarctica. He crossed the Antarctic Circle three times on this voyage, coming very close to huge ice sheets. After this, he should have just gone home, but he crisscrossed the South Pacific, verifying the existence of many island groups, before going back to Britain, via the South Atlantic, where he discovered the South Sandwich Islands. Cook, only a year after returning from the second voyage, set off again, this time to the far north of the Pacific, to try and find a northern route to the Atlantic. On the way there, he was the first European discoverer of the Hawaiian Islands. On his way back, he anchored at a bay whose name I'm not even going to try and pronounce. Cook was received as a god by the natives, and the ships were able to be restocked and they could make astronomical observations. After three weeks, Cook departed, but a gale made him turn back for more repairs. He wasn't as well received this time. On the 14th of February, he took the chieftain hostage after a dispute, and a fracas broke out. Many were left dead on either side, including Cook. One of the more colourful and notable lives of the British Empire's history ended, but for our story, Cook's extraordinary three journeys were made possible because of the development in navigational equipment, such as the sextant and the K1 chronometer. The chronometer was of extreme importance and hence value. It cost £500 to make the chronometer, 
whereas the purchase price of the entire Endeavour ship was only £2,800. By the 1820s, and gaps and maps were being filled in, but some places still needed to be fully charted. The Straits of Magellan, by the southern tip of South America, were crying out for a good charting. So HMS Beagle set off under the command of Pringle Stokes. This first voyage was not as notable as the second, which was under the command of Robert Fitzroy, after Stokes committed suicide. Fitzroy invited a naturalist called Charles Darwin to accompany him, and the second voyage was to continue charting of the southern, south of the American landmass in the Pacific. The second voyage of the Beagle went to the Galapagos Islands, Tahiti, New Zealand, Australia, amongst others. As part of the scientific exploration, Fitzroy would be the first to discover a few small islands, along with being the first to determine the exact longitude of Rio de Janeiro, which was still disputed. Despite resulting in the greatest and most world-changing scientific theories, the Admiralty got what they most valued, all the reading from Fitzroy's chronometers. Perhaps the last great navigational expeditions were those of the polar regions. Yet to show the new power of navigation, I'm not going to talk about one of the great successful explorations of the polar regions, but one of the most famous failures of all time. The endurance with Sir Ernest Shackleton as captain was given the go-ahead by the first Lord of the Admiralty to set sail for the Antarctic. This was August 1914, when most of the enlisted men should have been called up for the war. Yet Winston Churchill still gave them the go-ahead. Shackleton joined the endurance in Buenos Aires, and the ship headed south, where reports of huge ice packs were alarming to the crew. By January 1915, the ship was only 60 miles from the Antarctic coast. However, the Endurance became stuck in the ice pack. And so, over the next few months, the Endurance became a winter station, unable to wriggle free. Seals provided fresh food, as the ice pack was slowly moving forward. By October, they hoped the ice might break up. When they saw eight emperor penguins appear out of a crack in the ice, they could see the ice was breaking up. This breakup of the ice sheet, however, also broke the endurance. 281 days it had been locked in ice, and they managed to abandon the ship in lifeboats. They managed to drift northwards for five months before they set up camp on the ice pack. Lanes of open water began to appear as it got warmer over the turn of the year and into spring. So the team packed everything up and launched the three surviving small boats. By April they were setting sail at temperatures of minus 14 Celsius. They made for Elephant Island, one of the islands on the outer reaches from Antarctica. They sailed the 35 miles to Elephant Island, a feat only possible with that accuracy due to the preciseness of their navigation devices. Once at Elephant Island they had to instantly set up camp. With winter coming again, the pain never ended. They decided their best option was to try and sail the 800 miles to South Georgia, somewhere near the Falkland Islands. Shackleton chose himself and his chief navigation officer and a few others. They had brought 24 chronometers with them for the original expedition, but only had one left. As they sailed, the huge waves in this part of the ocean threatened to destroy them. After 10 days, they worked out they had travelled 444 miles. They were about halfway there. 
When they were about 80 miles from shore, they used the techniques sailors for all of history had used to guide themselves. They started to spot signs of land, more fish, seaweed and shagbirds. After trouble with a huge storm, Shackleton landed on South Georgia. He was safe. So they landed at a whaling station after getting a ship to go and rescue the others. However, it took four journeys and several other ships from Uruguay and the Chilean government to pick up the remaining crew on Elephant Island. No men lost their lives. The story of Shackleton is a remarkable one, but it highlights the incredible developments that navigation devices could do. That they were able to return to tell the story of the Antarctic expedition should not be taken lightly. It shows the ability greater navigation gives you. They were able to work out their position, work out how to get to Elephant Island, and from there to Georgia Islands. In so much of history, Shackleton's story would have just been another story of failed expedition, and would have been a minor story in the grand scheme of things. While Shackleton's expeditions were incredible, this was almost the end of analogue navigation. Soon electronic forms of navigation were increasingly being used. For more than 125 years, electronic navigation has been conceptualised. There were ideas of radio wave lighthouses, which essentially soon came to fruition, with ships that could transmit Morse code. It was in the 1930s with radio beacons that allowed for true navigation via radio. On board, the ship's signal could be picked up by a receiver through a special antennae that could locate the bearing of the transmitter. This system was useful but not overly accurate. Yet it would be these limited systems that allowed for hyperbolic navigation that was proposed in the 1930s that would prove to be the biggest revolution. The Lauren A system was based from hyperbolic navigation. It measured the time difference between the reception of the transmissions from two spaced transmitters. Experimental systems were built in 1940 and found to have a usable system of 300 miles. Yet, when the Laurent A was developed, it offered positions up to 1,000 miles from the shore. This range was of course of great use in the Pacific waters, where you had to navigate the many islands. After the Second World War, the Laurent was put into the hands of the US Coast Guard, who created the Laurent B, and then the much more impactful Laurent C, which improved accuracy over longer ranges. In Europe, many still used Laurent A and then C, but Europe had different navigational needs around its coast, with less need for range and precision. The Decker navigator system was developed, which used differences in the signal phases to be more reliable. The Decker system was primarily used to navigate around coastal waters, and was in use until about the year 2000, when the GPS satellite system took over. The same happened with the Loran receiver system in the United States. So GPS is of course the most modern type of navigation devices. While navigation devices have probably always been one of the most advanced pieces of scientific equipment, this hasn't really changed. In the 18th century, a reliable watch must have seemed like magic. Now we think of it as the lowest form of tech possible, and possibly not even a technology. It's old and boring. You can buy a reliable watch with a tiny amount of money. Yet today, navigation still remains one of the most important areas of technological progress. Little could be imagined 
that in the 1760s, the whole issue of positioning would have been solved by artificial satellites. The first ever satellite was the Russian Sputnik 1, as I'm sure we're all familiar with now. The information that can be provided by satellites is now in everyday life, but for navigation it was almost a Rosetta Stone. Being able to provide a quick and easy method for deciphering a way to get to your position. All Sputnik did was transmit radio signals so it could be tracked. Yet just days after the 1957 launch, two physicists were able to determine its orbit by analysing its Doppler shift. The Doppler shift is a change in frequency of radio signals as it approaches or retreats from the observer. The following year, and the Doppler shift was argued that it should be investigated as a good way for navigation. This idea was taken up by the US Navy, who wanted a worldwide position fixing system for their submarines. It launched in 1960, but took until 1964 for it to go into full effect. The system allowed for precision that was less than 200 metres on average, though some experiments were able to get it less than a metre. Not bad for the 1960s. From 1967, the transmit satellite signal, as it was called, was in the public domain, and it started to become highly commercial, with, with small private crafts, such as yachts, able to use it. With the establishment of the system, the concept of navigating by satellite was established. But by the 1970s, thoughts were coming to a new satellite system. During this time, satellite systems had started offering weather reports, rather than just relying on weather information for ships. The Global Positioning System GPS, was launched in the United States in 1973 as an improvement of transit. It started as a military project, with the Department of Defence largely inventing it. The system depended on a very accurate atomic clock. The atomic clock was accurate enough to record to 0.03 nanoseconds per day, meaning a change of one second over real time every 100 million years or so. By pinpointing your position by a satellite via a signal that travels at light speed, the accuracy of the clock is improved. Yet it's still largely the same idea as the Harrison watch. You are pinpointing location via time. In the early days, the cost of GPS prohibited it from much use on a commercial basis, and it was only military requirements that could afford it. When, in 1983, a South Korean airliner strayed into Russian territory and was shot down, Ronald Reagan announced this new system would be free to all at air and sea to aid navigation. Today, satellite systems seem to be something of a growing great power battle. The US has GPS, the Russians have GLASMOS, Global Navigation Satellite System, the European Union is developing Galileo, China has Beidou navigation satellite system, while the UK recently bought OneWeb in its attempt to look like a great power once again post-Brexit. Yet the Americans do always seem to win these races. Why? Private enterprise is stronger in the United States than anywhere else. Elon Musk is developing Starlink that will allow for a complete covering of satellites over Earth, something that will allow for complete and accurate navigation all over the world along with many other benefits. The Chinese system claims that when it is fully completed, it will provide location accuracy within one millimetre, 
which would be an immense development and open up new applications. Accuracy on sea may get so advanced that there's no longer a human requirement to steer. Increased location accuracy will also result in new developments. All advances in navigation allows for a multitude change in areas we cannot see. So we've talked about navigation on sea, yet what about navigation on land? Well, to a large extent, it's mapping. It is the simplest navigation device anywhere. If you know where you are and where you are going because it has been mapped, then you hopefully won't get lost. Unless you're like me and refuse to use pre-made routes or maps and like to make it up as you go along. Anyway, this system has a name, cartography. What constitutes the earliest map is not an easy question. The earliest we know of was a wall painting in Katalhuk in Anatolia, Turkey, made around 6200 BC. It was a wall painting depicting the streets and houses of the town, with surrounding features such as the volcano close to town. Early real attempts at maps were limited by the lack of knowledge about anything other than local features. Early Egyptian attempts were helped by the growth and improvement in geometry. The annual flooding of the Nile meant that without these measurements it would have been impossible to reconstruct boundaries that had been there before. There is also no evidence of these local Egyptian maps being put together, however, and forming a map of the whole of Egypt. Perhaps the earliest real maps come to us from Babylon, with a map showing the Euphrates River going through Babylonian territory. The earliest Greek map comes from Anaximander, who died in 546 BC. Yet this map doesn't travel down to us, and so we can't see it. From Pythagoras in the 6th century BC, humans have recognised this spherical shape of Earth. In around 350 BC, Aristotle put forward six arguments to argue that the world was spherical, which from then on was generally accepted. Eratosthenes put forward in 250 BC a measurement of the circumference of the Earth, showing the roots of the Nile to Khartoum showing two Ethiopian tributaries, while also sketching a good grid of the Earth, an early way to use coordinates. Perhaps the most important cartographer in the classical age, or at least the biggest step forward towards modern times, came from a mathematician, Ptolemy. Ptolemy wrote his major work, Guide to Geography, in eight books, which tried to map the known world. It gave coordinates of major places in a rudimentary attempt at latitude and longitude. In the most famous part of the work, Ptolemy gave instructions for his scribe to copy the map. He followed previous cartographers in dividing the circle of the equator into 360 degrees, but redrew the map so the line of latitude went through Rhodes and present-day Gibraltar, whereas the line of longitude went through modern-day Canary Islands. The map's datasets were basically travellers telling him what they saw as they travelled further and further out. There were about 8,000 places on the map, all with coordinates. And while we look at it, it's massively flawed, but a revolution of the time. Even parts of the Roman Empire were still very poor mapping quality, but it was still an advance over what came before. It's odd the Roman Empire didn't make much advance in cartography over the next few centuries. Given their road-building skills, precise military operations, scale of the empire, you might have thought they'd want to understand what was actually in their territory, for tax purposes, if nothing else. Yet, in China, there was a much larger effort to survey the state. 
in the third century, Li Hu's work gives us an insight into what efforts the state had gone into surveying China. The main driving force was to survey and draw maps for military reasons and to conserve water. The next drive was in the next intellectual centre, the Arab world. Ptolemy's geography was translated into Arabic in the 9th century. Based on this, improvements were made with Al-Khwarizmi's writing a major work on cartography, which improved on Ptolemy's work in most respects. Especially and obviously in the regions of Al-Khwarizmi was writing, like in the Middle East and Far East, the work was done by Islamic geographers and was an important help in Europe up until about 1800 or so. Al-Biruni later wrote a textbook of cartographic solutions. He introduced a technique to measure Earth by triangulation and found it to be 6,339.6 kilometres in diameter, a figure not arrived at in the West until the 16th century. Furthermore, Christian Europe was in a backward state and refusing to go against biblical judgments in science, such as in Isaiah, which is said, quote, the four corners of the earth, close quote. The Catholic Church managed to overrule science, which said that the earth was spherical. Yet, by the 14th century, and the Dark Ages were being left behind, with maps and charts beginning to be used to navigate the Mediterranean. Even in this new age, there was much more borrowing from Ptolemy's maps. When new discoveries were made by Portugal in the 15th century, it led the way for a cartographic revolution. In 1457, Brother Mauro, a monk from nearby Venice, was commissioned to produce a new map containing the new lands discovered by the Portuguese explorers. Brother Mauro was nervous about contradicting Ptolemy. Mauro was interested in the knowledge and was recorded as saying, quote, I do not think it's derogatory to Ptolemy if I do not follow his cosmographica, because to have observed his meridians or parallels or degrees, it would be necessary in respect to the setting out of the known parts of this circumference, to leave out many provinces not mentioned by Ptolemy, but principally in latitude, that is, from north to south, he has much terra incognita, because in his time it was unknown." Despite adding to Ptolemy's geography, he was not able to improve on his methodology. Quite quickly, maps started to spread following Brother Mauro's invention, though probably not because of him. Ptolemy's geography was reprinted and translated into Latin, and many editions followed with printed new maps of Europe, such as the Florence map of 1480, which contained new maps for France, Italy, Spain and Palestine. The first maps to show the New World was an updated version of a 1475 map of Rome, reissued in 1508. What we might now call an atlas was first published in 1513 in Strasbourg, with 27 ancient maps and 20 new maps. Published by Martin Valdeschine Muller, it was the first to cover a 360 degree longitude and show the complete coast of Africa, while he was also the first to name America as America, saying, quote, since another fourth part of the world has been discovered by Americus Vespucius, I do not see why anyone should object to its being called after Americus, the discoverer, a man of natural wisdom, land of Americus, or America, since both Europe and Asia have derived their names from women." <coughs> Yet it was in the 16th century which saw real cartographic progress, and not just a rehashing of ancient Christendoms or Arabic knowledge, 
Johannes Müller von Königsberg, which I think is perhaps the most German name we've seen so far this series, although Martin Waldeschiele Müller is pretty good too, was the first to really attempt to turn cartography into a science. Better known as Regimontanus, he added trigonometry, instruments and astronomy into his cartographic efforts. He was the first to argue for lunar measurements to measure longitude. Following this work, Johann Werner wrote in 1514 a book which gives a method of lunar longitude and later greatly influencing Gerhard of Mercator. Demophysius in 1530 was the first to provide an accurate means of surveying using triangulation, yet it was Gerhardus Mercator who studied under Frisius who represents the most significant jump in cartography during this period. He made many new maps and globes, but his biggest contribution was the Mercator projection. He realised that sailors assumed following a compass course would have sailed them in a straight line. Yet of course the Earth is curved, not in a straight line. So he firstly made a globe with the correct latitude lines made on it. This was an important stage and helped him develop his ideas of a Mercator projection for a warm-up of 18 separate sheets. This projection had properties of longitude and latitude, as straight lines on the map. We know there's a problem with the map in terms of how it represents Greenland as larger than Africa, but for projections at sea it's hard to find a better map. As the 17th and 18th centuries developed and scientific advances got larger, there was a push for better maps, not just for exploring virgin lands, but lands that had many people go through her before. Thomas Burnett in the 17th century called for the development of civilian maps, quote, I do not doubt that it would be a very good use to have natural maps of the earth as well as civil. Our common maps I call civil, which note the distinction of countries and cities and represent the artificial earth as inhabited and cultivated. But natural maps leave all that out and represent the earth as it would be if there were not an inhabitant upon it, nor ever had been, the skeleton of the earth, as I may so say, with the sight of all its parts." This new idea of civilian maps is best represented in Britain by the Ordnance Survey, whose origins are probably more interesting than its charting. Britain in the 18th century was not a quiet place. It was arguably the sick man of Europe. Civil wars, political upheavals, political integration of Scotland that was seeing much resistance, not to say the perceived by some illegitimate king. This was to all reach ahead in 1745. Charles Edward Stuart probably had a good reason to be annoyed. His grandfather had forced to abdicate. His grandfather had been forced to abdicate by Parliament in the glorious revolution of 1688. Through the years, there had been some armed rebellions in the Highlands. If you've ever been to the Highlands, you can imagine this problem. Today, it's as sparsely populated as Russia. Back then, it was much more dense, but it's still a huge place with rugged terrain, more like Norway than the south of England. It was very difficult to control. This political opposition to the rule of the Protestant king over that of the Catholic Stuart line meant many Highlanders moved to the empire, specifically to the south of the United States, which gave the southern states a huge influx of Highlanders. The attempt 150 years later to rebel in their new homeland against the more culturally English in the north of the United States also did not go well. The Jacobites were named from the Latin for James, Jacobus, 
and wars had broke out in 1715 and 1719, and then remained quiet for 25 years until 1744, when whispers broke out of renewed unrest. In July 1745, the pretender for the crown left exile in Italy to travel to Scotland. When he arrived, and in the months after, he had an army of several thousand Highlanders. He was pronounced as King of Britain, and they marched south, taking Edinburgh and then into England, reaching Derby in the Midlands in December 1745, only 130 miles from London. As the British army moved to Derby, the Highlanders retreated, knowing they could not take London. Subsequent months saw limited battles until the Highlanders and regulars took battle at Culloden Moor near Inverness. The Stuart army was devastated by the British in just 45 minutes. The last pitched battle on British soil had taken place. In the hours after, the British extracted merciless revenge on the Highlanders, with eyewitnesses reporting the moor was covered in blood. Throughout the course of this rebellion, the British had been saddled with poor knowledge of the Highlands. Look at the episode on guerrilla warfare for what a huge advantage this can be. There was a clear need, if this was to ever happen again, for better knowledge of the Highlands region. Maps up to that point were not good enough in the further reaches of the British state. The development of the Yodanot Survey map is fascinating, but I don't want to make it a long episode for the sake of it. It was a huge undertaking, yet one that stands the test of time. If you want a map of Britain, look no further than the Ordnance Survey maps. So we've seen how crucial navigation was all over the world, and in understanding the world. The development of navigation devices enabled the world to explore more. The compass allowed Columbus to sail across a point of latitude and explore the new world. The marine chronometer allowed Cook to discover the Pacific Ocean. Now with satellite navigation on Earth, we may feel like a salt issue, but when humans look up, we see the unmapped and unexplored galaxy. Navigation on Earth allows us to see our own mistakes and the importance of navigation for the future. Knowing where you are going will always be the key for everything humans want to do. And for this reason, navigation devices are listed at number 58 on our list of the greatest inventions of all time.